Good morning and good afternoon. Thank you very much for being with us. My name is David McFarland. I'm the Marketing Communications Manager for Medsphere. And joining me today are Katie Sikerchik. Katie's a nurse and the Clinical Sales Director for Medsphere. And Emil Jimenez. Emil is a physician and he's a Clinical Solutions Architect for Wellsoft, a division of Medsphere. Hi guys, how are you? Hi, thank you. Good morning, Hi, David. Good morning. Good morning, David. Hey, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to be with me. I appreciate it. And today um, we're here to just talk about something that you might consider a tad unusual. Um, it's not just that we don't we discuss seldom discuss corrections in general, but we want to talk about corrections in healthcare and how IT plays a part in that. Let's start pretty general and just talk about corrections in general um, or or healthcare in corrections. Um, how would you describe the correctional health landscape? What does it look like? Um, how is it structured? Is it something that we can describe fairly easily or is it more complex than that? Um, I'll go ahead and start. I, I think that when you consider healthcare in the corrections environment, what we're really talking about is kind of the, the jails and, and prison systems throughout the country. And when you look at the, the population within those environments, you can see the landscape as kind of the, the most needy or the most underserved people within the communities. Oftentimes, um, you know, the same things that have landed them into a corrections environment have also led to, you know, unhealthy states of being. So really, if you, if you consider it kind of a slice of the most needy within our society and within our healthcare organization. I would really, um, you know, think of that as as kind of the base landscape. You know, you've got the the neediest members of society, in some aspects. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Like you probably the inmates that you're seeing in these prisons and jails um, probably have the highest rates of like mental health disorders or substance abuse even chronic medical conditions if you compare them to like the general population. So yeah, these are probably like the, one of the sickest sort of, uh, uh, in terms of like comparing them to uh, the community, um, the inmates in prison sort of represent your, your sickest uh, uh, people in the community, community essentially. You know, that uh, that's an interesting way to, to, to um, that's an interesting way to analyze it from both of you, um, because I think this is a real departure from generally, from how we think about people in corrections in general. We've set them aside, we've put them in facilities where they're kept away from society, and that need that they may have, both physically and mentally, um, for treatment of various kinds is not something that we often focus on at all, and I don't think we ever focus on it primarily. So this seems like a, a somewhat different approach now, obviously, for the people who run these correctional facilities, there's society holds them responsible for providing some kind of uh, a care for the people in the facilities, uh, the um, people who live there. So who has the primary responsibility for providing health care to people that um, exist, live their lives within a correctional facility? Katie, what do you think? 
Um, well, you know, the, the question can be answered kind of simplistically and say, you know, the primary caregivers in a healthcare institution within a correctional facility are going to be nurses. So, you know, so at its simplest, you know, you've got nurses kind of working um, under the guidance of, of, of medical doctors um, that may not be on site. So when you're talking about the hands-on care provided, who's responsible, you're typically, typically talking about nurses, which, um, but you're also going to have the, the entire scope of the healthcare continuum, your dentist, your doctor, your psychologist. But that's a very simple way of looking at it. When you think of responsibility, the responsibility really falls on um, you know, kind of everybody, whether you're talking about legislatures, con you know, Congress, um, the Department of Justice. Um, one of the things to keep in mind with this population is that by nature of the people in there, they're, they are not afforded um, some of the, the same rights as us. You know, we have, we have intentionally um, put them aside and safeguarded the rest of society from these people. But in doing so, that means that society has taken on the responsibility of their health care. Um, we've taken it out of their hands to make some of those decisions. So, you know, a simplistic answer is, you know, the primary um, care is provided by nurses at the bedside in the healthcare facility. But it's a much more complex in terms of who is ultimately responsible for that. Um, because I think that um, as, as a country that has 20% um, of the world's incarcerated population, um, you know, we as a country are responsible for the health care of, of those individuals. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, Katie, I appreciate you bringing that up. You bring up a lot of larger and more complex questions, not some of which we probably can't get to within the space of, of this fairly brief conversation, but there is a lot there to think about. So you rolled it all the way up to the federal government. We've rolled it back down again to the nurse at the bedside. In between there um, is the actual, is the people responsible for the individual facilities. So that could be, um, obviously we have federal uh, penitentiaries. Um, we have state-run penitentiaries. We have jails. We have things at a county level. We have private penitentiaries. Um, and it seems as though I mean, you've really fractured then the primary responsibility if we roll down from, you know, society um, at the upper level to the people responsible for the facility, you roll it back down. And how does that make providing care that much more um, complex? Emil, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it, it really depends, right? It depends on the facility too. So you have prisons, uh, federal prisons that are typically uh, run by the federal government and you have state prisons run by the, the state government and you have the, the local jails, uh, basically the, that the local municipalities kind of uh, finance and take care of. So uh, across those facilities, you'll have varying degrees of uh, health care that gets provided. So some large prisons might have uh, infirmaries on site um, smaller prisons might not. They might privatize that and contract that out to uh, healthcare providers within the community. So there's there's a lot of variances. You really can't really standardize the amount or the type of care these inmates are are getting. So it's it really depends on where these inmates are and how what type of community kind of is supporting that prison or jail. So that kind of dictates what type of care they're getting at these at these prisons.
the society ends up paying for it, but then paying for the actual care itself. Yeah, go ahead. Well, exactly. It's essentially the, the taxpayers' money, right? Whether it be federal, state, or local, it's essentially our money that's basically being spent to take care of these prisoners. Sure. Um, the one thing that kind of surprised me too while looking into this is, which I didn't know, uh, was that a lot of these uh, inmates actually are required to pay co-pays when they have uh, medical visits within the prison. So it's not a lot. I think they pay around six to eight dollars per visit, but that's sort of like if you think about it, um, uh, uh, requiring a prisoner to pay a six, eight dollar copay to get seen uh, for a complaint within the prison when they essentially don't have any source of income. They, they have jobs within these prisons, but those jobs kind of pay around uh, like four to 16 cents an hour. So, uh, so basically requiring them to pay six to eight dollars uh, per visit is essentially comparable to uh, basically making us pay maybe like five hundred to a thousand dollars to just to see our doctors. So it kind of just uh, dictates the type of so that sort of uh, requirement uh, makes an inmate kind of think twice uh, before actually uh, deciding to kind of see a provider within a jail or a prison. Yeah, so that dynamic exists both in a correctional facility in the same way it sort of it does out in the public. If people are cash strapped, um, yeah. they tend to avoid care. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned you mentioned the public, and and when you think about this, um, you know, like Emil, kind of looking into this, there were some things that kind of surprised me. Ninety-five percent of the people that are in corrections today are going to come back into the communities. You know, we hear you know hot news stories about people getting life in prison, but that's not the majority of the population um, that are in correctional health. Um, most of the the people there are actually going to rejoin society, and so this really becomes a, a very prominent part of public health and public health initiatives because if they're not getting treated properly while they're in the facilities then when they come out of the facilities, which 95% of them will be, what type of care are they going to be getting? Um, how do they transition that care? Are they able to transition the care or do they become more of a burden um, and, and have less options available to them? Um, so then it becomes kind of a revolving door of, of you know, their circumstances. Um, Again, very, very complex public health issue. Yeah, I well, kind of think about sort of the. No, Emily, you go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so it's kind of like just to kind of uh, follow on with in terms of like public health. Think about from where these prisoners or inmates are coming from in terms of the community. A lot of times, um, they're exposed their their they basically the intake process within these prisons these are typically the first times these prisoners are even being screened medically uh for their condition so you have prisoners with hypertension diabetes or maybe even asthma that have never seen a doctor before and then once they become incarcerated that's sort of the first time uh they basically get a health screening so uh, a lot of times jails and prisons sort of become the de facto behavioral health and, and medical health institution for these prisoners. You know, I really want to put a finer point on this because you both mentioned it, but we don't think about correctional health in terms of public health, in terms mm -hmm. of the broader public health uh, 
environment. Um, but it sounds like we're making a case for for considering it as such, especially given the statistic that you know ninety plus percentage of, of people who are in correctional health are going to come back into the into society, and they're going to bring whatever problems were treated or untreated from a correctional facility back into society with them, and that becomes just a part of the public health landscape. Um, is there a benefit to society, in your opinion, to us thinking about this more from a public health perspective than, I mean, we're thinking it generally about it in terms of corrections and you can't get about, you, you can't get away from using the word punishment in terms of how we approach corrections often in this country. So that might well, be into healthcare. And, and that in and of itself is, is another area of debate. Is it punishment? Is it rehabilitation? It really depends on who you ask. But when we look at it from a, a rehabilitation standpoint, I think that's where we're, we're really failing. You know, in the 1970s, there was a big push in the country to deinstitutionalize the mental health facilities um, in the country and to, to really kind of make sure that some of uh, those inhumane practices didn't occur um, that, that previous generations had, had dealt with. But, you know, there was a gap. There was a lot of defunding and deinstitutionalizing institutionalizing that happened. Um, but then there was a, a subset of society that kind of got into this cycle. So I think that, yes, there's a huge benefit to, to healthcare within the corrections facilities, because um, if we can address the mental health needs of someone that has made it as, you know, through the criminal justice system, they they're now in jail or they're in prison, and we have identified that they have um, either substance abuse issues or mental health issues, and we can trans transition that care out of the facility, get them stabilized while they're, you know, um, being punished or rehabilitated, and then get them back into society with a, a proper treatment plan, into counseling services, into, um, you know, other healthcare providers. Well, then you've set somebody up for success. So, so to look at it, is there a benefit to society? Absolutely, because a lot of the people that are in these facilities are actually dealing with mental health um, complications that have maybe not directly placed them in the environments, but have certainly contributed to um, the overall circumstances that have, have gotten them there. So we're talking about um, we're actually you're, we're talking about this from a rehabilitative perspective, um, and, and and truly what the benefits of society are. Yes. Um, so this sort of brings in the question of healthcare IT because we know um, how healthcare IT has been applied uh, generally to healthcare outside of corrections facilities. Is there any reason to think that it isn't um, equally as beneficial? inside correctional facilities as we are arguing that it, it, uh, it is in the general population? No. In fact, I would almost say that it's it's more so. Um, How's I, that? Well, again, that transition of, of information, those, those of us that work in healthcare IT are very familiar with certain terminology like continuity of care documents and health information exchanges and, and some of the um, technology foundations that allow the exchange of information from one provider to another um, so that you can continue care or not duplicate services and make sure that you've got kind of a, a thorough healthcare approach or a continuum of care. Um, 
tech, we can't do that without technology. Um, and so having a, a, an IT solution in, in a correctional facility then allows any services that are provided within that facility to transition outside and vice versa. If somebody's receiving a medication or receiving mental health services or chronic disease management at external facilities, and we can get that information, you know, through technology exchange, once they become incarcerated, then you've, you've helped with that continuum of care. And so, you know, hopefully on a progression of healthcare. Um, Emil, as, as a system architect, has probably a lot more information regarding the technology itself, but from a clinical perspective, um, it, it can't be um, overemphasized how important it is to, to have continuity of care when trying to treat, you know, long-term chronic conditions. Yeah, yeah, I would argue that it would be, it's kind of, it's even more important for these facilities to implement uh, uh, healthcare IT, because again, if you look at the environment compared to a hospital or a doctor's clinic, there, these these facilities are have less resources. They're typically understaffed. So having technology to kind of complement and uh, facilitate uh, the 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 healthcare of prisoners in uh, an environment like prisons or jails kind of just lends towards better care, uh, a reduction of errors, and kind of better clinical practice. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, that connection, we're, we're making the argument regularly that a health information exchange um, and these kinds of tools uh, within the broader healthcare environment, public environment, are a benefit to the public uh, because the information is available um, to all the providers for every patient, hypothetically. It's not working that way yet, but that is the goal and it is it has improved dramatically. So if I'm a taxpayer and um, what would my, what would you say to a taxpayer who had concerns about spending public tax dollars to implement these kinds of systems within correctional facilities? Tell me in a nutshell, what you think the benefits are to me as Joe taxpayer. Well, I'd say you're already spending the money. Aside from, aside from Medicaid, correctional healthcare is the fastest growing division of federal spending on healthcare services. Um, and, you know, that, really, that. Yeah, that really surprised me. And so I would say you're already spending it, but are you necessarily spending it in, in the right ways? Um, you know, there's always a lot of discussion in this country around, um, you know, government versus private in terms of solutions. But we also have to remember that a lot of the institutions that these patients are in, um, and, and when we're talking about healthcare, they are patients. They may be inmates, but they're also patients, are for-profit facilities. And, you know, how do you keep profits down? You minimize expenses. How do you minimize expenses when we already know that most of your population is sick? You know, so, you know, there, there's a lot of underlying questions there. But to Joe taxpayer, you're already paying it. The federal government is already putting out money into the healthcare of the corrections health. The question is, where is that funding going? Yeah, and if you, think, if you think about it too, in terms of technology, like having uh, an EHR or computer at the point of care kind of helps with also reducing the amount of, let's say, unnecessary, like duplicate tests or unnecessary procedures that the inmate needs to go through. So that kind of just translates to 
essentially spending the money where the money needs to be spent. Right. Okay. So, um, are these systems widely adopted? I mean, let's say you've got a state, for example, many states run a, a broad correctional uh, network within their states. Do we have any indication of how widely adopted electronic health record or other types of health IT tools? Uh, do we know how, to what extent they've been adopted within networks of correctional facilities in states, for example, um, in in uh, within private um, correctional facility networks? Any indication? Um, so the adoption is definitely more prominent than it it was, you know, even even five to ten years ago. There's certain states. Um, New York, for an example, has has um, you know kind of a very broad health IT network within their correctional health. Um, California is is also um, you know implementing and and has implemented quite a few. So obviously we kind of have those those large um, you know good GDP states that have um, implemented right. this. Yeah. But but you know across the country. Um, I, there's still a lot of room because, you know, there's there's adoption of a technology and then there's adoption of the type of technology that that um, Emil and I are talking about, something that really can can make change um, at the facilities that can help, you know, build in efficiencies and share content from one system to a next in to out. Um, and I do think that we're lacking that, you know, across the board. We, um, we also know that New Mexico um, is looking to implement. So you mentioned, uh, you know, the rich, the wealthy states, New York and California, who've done or are doing this. Um, obviously, some, of the, uh, some states that aren't as wealthy are, obviously, are still also seeing a need for this um, kind of technology uh, to enhance the care that they provide in correctional facilities. Emil, are there obstacles? to states more broadly adopting, I, sorry, I said states, but really it's far broader than that. Are there obstacles to um, organizations and institutions more broadly adopting this type of technology in correctional facilities? Yeah, well, I guess the, the most obvious obstacle would be budget, right? So a lot of these institutions kind of have very, really like limited, like small margins of operation. So they kind of don't have the money to spend for this. You kind of need to convince them that implementing uh, a system like this will actually save them money uh, in the long run. Um, a, a lot of times, too, the, the the variability in terms of how these prisons and jails are kind of set up um, kind of limits the the uh, the type of software that they implement. So they kind of need to find uh, a type of software that can adjust to the various ways uh, they kind of go through these. Uh, these uh, they basically take care of these uh, inmates. So the 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 one thing that we also discovered with we're looking at this is sort of the the limited connectivity that sometimes these prisons would have. So a lot of times they would have unreliable networks. Sometimes their Wi-Fi typically would just work in a certain area. Once they go to certain uh, prison blocks, the Wi-Fi basically just doesn't exist anymore. So having a system that is able to kind of adapt to that sort of environment, I think is something that they would need to kind of look at. Right. You've identified a few uh, challenges that exist probably only in correctional facilities. Uh, are there others? You know, 
again, kind of looking at it from the clinical perspective, um, there's certainly the challenges of the safety. You know, we, we always want to keep in mind that regardless of the, you know, societal factors that may have helped, um, you know, land these prisoners there from, you know, from the aspect of safety, they are prisoners, they're, they're patients, they're prisoners. Um, and we want to make sure that the staff, which, you know, Emil has already indicated oftentimes very understaffed, oftentimes, um, you know, just, just a nurse working with the patient, working with the prisoner. So we want to keep safety in mind because there are, um, you know, certain violent tendencies or certain dangers that are inherent to this more so than in your traditional clinic. Um, so, you know, that's, that's an obstacle. It's not necessarily an obstacle with the technology, but it is a, an obstacle within the environment and also access to the right care in a timely and efficient manner. You know, if you've got a um, mental health provider that is rounding between all of the facilities within a state, how often are they going to be available for um, a, a prisoner that is perhaps in crisis today? And, you know, will they be available for that? So it's the same with dental services, same for, you know, anybody that needs x-rays, any of those specialty care services that you could seek easily if you were outside of the correctional health, you may have a very extended wait for. Um, and, and that's one way that technology can really improve because if you've got, you know, can really improve the experience because if everything is very clearly documented and what's been happened from the time that, you know, the problem initiated up until a provider was able to be there, what types of interventions have we taken? How has it progressed, deteriorated or improved? Um, if we have access to that quickly and efficiently, then when they are on site to provide the care, um, they can do so with, you know, kind of the full spectrum of, of, you know, the patient condition. Okay. So given the challenges that we've, there are unique 